You know, I just realized that the official name of this podcast is actually Tactics and Design Chats with Michael Chennault, and I've realized that I've done roughly 100% tactics chats and almost no design chats. So I figured we would go ahead and uh, break that trend and talk about some design stuff uh, today, because I figured that would be something a bit of change of pace for you guys would enjoy. I also have a really good set of good news today. Uh, that's put me in kind of a euphoric mood. So while usually talking about design stuff, I would kind of consider spoilers and things like that. And I'm not a big fan of that. I'm in a bit of a, you know, elevated mood because of this. I've turned out that talking about sponsorships uh, through a legal loophole, I no longer have to actually pitch to Tina's Pizza Rolls, which I have gone on record to say time and time again are absolute garbage and probably one of the worst things that you could put in your body. I'm actually a big advocate for health and everything, so please, like, just don't eat those if you are. Anyway, legal loophole. So Totino's is actually owned by General Mills. Um, General Mills uh, doesn't actually seem to really care what I talk about on here as long as they get their sponsorship thing because they're a big soulless corporation and don't listen to this podcast anyway. And anyone that takes this seriously, please evaluate that you fact that you think that General Mills is actually going to sponsor me. Anyway, point being is that I have to talk about one of their brands and just give it a shout out. Every time I do one of these podcasts for the next, uh, okay, bit of time, that's fine. But you know what? They didn't give any stipulations as to what I actually have to talk about now. So, you know, this entire episode is brought to you by, I don't know, Fruity Yummy Mummy brand General Mills cereal, which I think was discontinued back in the 90s. But you know what? It's a haunting good flavor. So, yeah, go out and get that if you can. Ha ha. Anyway, moving on. Today we are going to talk about the game modes. And so this is actually going to be coming up, well, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, I believe we have this planned for the 1.4 game modes update. And this is going to update both the game modes and a little bit of the tournament guidelines. Uh, okay, I almost gave away some probably bigger spoilers than I wanted to when we're talking about 1.5, but that's going to be an ongoing series of conversations for another time. So today we're going to focus on the 1.4 update coming out for the tournament guidelines and the game modes. And so let's go ahead and start by talking about the tournament guidelines. Really, the 1.4 update here, you're not going to see a lot of changes. The tournament guidelines are exactly as they are. The big thing that you're going to see here, and I don't even consider this really big, is just some very kind of changes to how information is presented and how things are scored. One of the big things is that um, we're going to be moving to an open list format, meaning that uh, before you choose the list that you're going to be playing, you will have access to your opponent's lists to see what their options are rather than just their faction. And a couple reasons for this. One, people were kind of already sharing this anyway, but two, you kind of figure it out throughout the day as you're playing in tournaments. And two, it prevents, sorry, three, it prevents that kind of, um, I don't even know what you call it, but, you know, the people scouting around tables and just seeing, oh, this is what this guy is playing, and that's going to give me a huge edge. It's like, not really. And it was just one of those things like, okay, in practicality, what does this actually change? Not really much. So let's go ahead and just, you know, make this change here. Frankly, if you were the type of person that was skulking around the tournament to see the list that people were playing and think that that somehow was giving you a competitive edge before the game started, uh, I, I really don't know what to say to you, man. But So we're just removing that restriction there. So it's open list format. When you go to play a game with someone, you will present your lists to them. 
they will present their list to you. After that, you will decide which one of your lists you're going to play, and the game will continue on. So, kind of minor thing there. The other thing is we're changing the scoring method for tiebreakers and secondary points. This is actually something that I've seen a lot of tournament organizers do incorrectly, and it can lead to some really skewed things. And this is kind of a worrying thing to me, just because I kept seeing this come up so often, is that it's very specific in the tournament guidelines that when you're scoring secondary points, you can only get a number of victory points up to the amount to win the game. That's what's recorded on your tournament guideline sheet. So, for example, if you're playing Feast for Crows and you somehow get 30 victory points and you needed 10 to win, you cap out at 10 as far as your tournament standings go. And I've actually had a couple of, now granted these are outlier, reports of people going, oh, well, someone scored like 30 points in Feast for Crows. So that was was on their sheet. And so they basically, if they tied at any other point in the tournament, then they had the best tiebreakers. I'm like, no, that's, that's not how that works at all. Uh, and that's just a failing on reading the proper guidelines here. But so we're actually changing the scoring format for the tournaments. You're still going to have your tournament points, which are dictated by your win-loss record. So that's going to be your primary method of winning. But the secondaries are kind of being changed up a bit as far as the tiebreakers go. And it's uh, going to basically be moving to a margin of victory system. So if you score X number of victory points over your opponent, you'll get a certain number of tournament points. If you score a similar number, same thing. And basically that's the gradient scale there. Uh, in other game formats, you might have it as referred to like minor victory, major victory, uh, tie victory, things like that. But that's how it's going to be moving. It's just a little bit of a streamlining to the process. It's another one of those things that, frankly, if you're playing the tournament guidelines by how they should be played, it's not going to change very much. But it's just one of those things that um, modifies it. So those are really the two things that would be happening to the tournament guidelines. Not very exciting stuff, but still worth mentioning and talking about because it does affect things if you're playing it incorrectly. Let's move on to actually talking about the game modes. This is actually going to be... Um, I'm not going to give too many spoilers about what is being changed and how things are being done, but I will talk about just some general things that we notice as far as the game modes are concerned, uh, things that we're looking out for, and just some things that we're modifying and changing to make it a better overall gaming experience. Now, I'm going to uh, preface this by saying... Everything here is subject to change. We're still going through development on all this. Nothing's finalized. None of these changes might make it in. Hell, we might revert it. It might stay exactly the same, just out of spite. You know, it's one of those things. So take what I'm saying here as this is a snapshot into the this very moment that we are in the development cycle and design cycle, and everything's subject to change. Because there's too often that, you know, uh, I will say something as an example, and two years, three years down the line here, people will go, well, you know, he said this, and it was basically confirmed at that point as being 100% true. Funny, I'll give an example there. Um, there was two years ago at the CMON Expo where Terry Lithgow and her husband, I was giving them a demo game on camera, and they were asking me about like, oh, well, what's the design space for future units and everything? And I literally off the top of my head just made up like, you know, okay, well, that's the thing is just because you see one version of a character, you know, you can see different versions of them in the future. For example, you know, there's nothing to stop this from having like a mounted Tywin later. And of course, 
people jumped on that as like, oh my god, confirmed spoilers, we're getting a mounted Tywin, which uh, you'll notice has not happened because it was an example that I made up on the spot. But to this day, I still get questions that are not even asking, oh, hey, you know, I heard you mention this. It's, so mounted Tywin was confirmed, when is he coming out? And, you know, it's that whole game of internet telephone. You know, someone says something and then someone else overhears something. And now by the time you're done, oh, this is the truth of matter. So that's just something to note. Okay, but let's get into this. So as far as the game mode uh, modes are concerned, some general things overall. Uh, terrain placement. We're adding a nifty little chart into the, uh, the game modes document that basically will be like, hey, if you want to randomize terrain for your game, this is how you do it. These are the pieces that you can show up. You know, just add some variety because there's basically two methods when it comes to terrain. And that is you can have it pre-set up by the TO at an event, randomly select it. I'm going to loop, I'm going to kind of group those together. Or you can do as the rulebook suggests, which is players will bring their own terrain pieces and set it up. And that was originally a design choice done to favor terrain being bought by different armies as basically almost part of your list creation. So, for example, if I'm playing a panic-heavy Lannister list, my terrain pieces I might want to bring to the table would be like corpse piles to bring out some horrific elements to help me with those panic tests. Uh, conversely, I might be playing an army that I know is weak in the morale area, so I might start stacking on weirwood trees. Or I'm playing an all-ranged army, so I want to get some buffers between my units in theirs, so I might stick down some bogs or some spikes. It was originally made to, you know, invoke that bit that terrain is an uh, integral part of army creation. And that's not to say that it is so integral that it is like, oh my god, we modify this and it changes everything. That's not the case. It's just one of those kind of neat little perks. But so, one of the options that we are opening up here to throw out is that you will have randomized terrain. And it's nothing special. It's basically just going, okay, there's a chart here. You can roll dice to see what your terrain pool is, and then you and your opponent will go through and set it up. But this is just to encourage more variety because, for example, you could play a game where it's like, oh, look, their terrain is going to be one spikes and three weirwood trees. Or, you know, this game, it's three bogs. You know, it's randomly to see what happens, but it's just going to make it so it's a little more dynamic to get you to kind of play outside the box. We did the terrain changes in the 1.4 rulebook, and we're really happy with how those have turned out. It's led to a lot more dynamic uh, terrain choices that you're seeing. Changing the way Destructible worked really opened up the avenue for a lot of people playing more stuff and having a greater impact. So that was a, a very positive change. We're really pushing that more. Now, of course, you can still do the standard format of you both choose what you're bringing and use this part of list creation. That's definitely one method of doing this. The whole point of this is just expanding options. And it's definitely going to be up to the type of tournament you're running, the tournament organizer, what they want to do. Because, I mean, the three basic options would be people bring their own terrain, people randomly roll to see what the terrain would be each round, or the terrain is set up by the tournament organizer and based on the game mode before each round. These are just different options to run the type of tournament that you want to see. And there's no right or wrong answer there. Now let's get into the, the meat of what we're going to talk about today. And that is the various game modes and potential adjustments and modifications that you're going to see. Now, again, I don't really want to go into and go, oh, this is definitely what we're going to do. These are just going by each game mode. Things that we've noticed from tournament feedback, from competitive areas, from casual play, playtesting and ongoing, things like that. And, you know, uh, things that might be addressed that might be changed and 
so forth. And frankly, it's not a lot. This is really going to be more of a stream of thought thing because a lot of the game modes, as they function now, they function okay. There are some that are obviously a little more polarizing, which uh, we'll have the conversation on when we get to them. But this will hopefully give you some insight into the window of how things work and how the process moves. So starting off, we are going to have a Game of Thrones, which is almost like the quintessential game mode here. You know, you're going to place your five objectives around the board. They're each going to get a special power, and you're going to go from there. Standard scoring. It's an area control objective. Oh my god, this is such an original idea. Come on. Uh, funny enough, the thing that gets brought up most here is people see a swing with the specifically the objective that is granting extra victory point. So like, okay, well, what if this shows up, you know, whoever controls this first just wins. There's a lot of things on the internet that people like to oversimplify. Go figure. It's the internet. Um, but a large part of this comes to as well of people needing to remember that you roll for table sides, you know, after everything is set up. That helps to mitigate things a bit. But um, as far as this game mode goes, there's not really a lot that needs to be modified in it or things like that. Um, one of the elements are kind of across all game modes that we are looking at exploring um, and modifying a bit is the ability to contest and control objectives. Right now, you know, you land a unit objective, you control that objective until that unit is basically forced off. We are exploring avenues to give armies more options to not necessarily take objectives from opponents, but contest them to stop the opponent from scoring them. Because right now, the only way to do that is to straight up just murder the unit that's on it. So just kind of, uh, that's kind of the biggest sentence that I can say in this entire podcast that we're going to be saying is that's kind of swept across all game modes that feature objectives, which is all of them pretty much, uh, is we're looking at ways to contest objectives and, you know, uh, force that choice because we don't want armies to be just based around speed about like, oh, I can get the, to the objective first and then I claim it and now ha ha ha, I win. Because while that should be a valid tactic, being able to get there first and being able to mo uh, mobilize yourself across the board, we don't want to necessarily punish the tankier factions that might take that extra turn to get up to an objective and, oh, well, a speed four versus speed six army. My, I'm going to claim these objectives, and now it's the duty of the Speed 4 unit to get me off of the objective, and ha ha ha, I've claimed them all. While that should actually, you should still be rewarded for playing that playstyle of wanting to be a fast army, that slower army should still have means of getting you off of that objective once they get up there. And that's what we're looking at doing, is just opening up some additional avenues for things to, things, situations like that to happen. So if you want to play a super defensive tanky army, you're not going to necessarily be punished by just not being faster than your opponent because having all the defense in the world is great, but if you're being forced on the offense to actually go take objectives and you can't because of the nature of the army you wanted to play, well, that's not rewarding. So this should be about utilizing the army that you bring, knowing your strengths and weaknesses, but not ever being in a situation where you are punished because of what you chose to bring. Now, obviously, that's, there's some exceptions there. If you bring an entire glass cannon list and you have no sustain, well, that's something you chose to do. But you should still have a viable route, if you play that army correctly, to function well and win the game. And not have it be based off of just, well, I'm at this huge uphill battle because of the list that I've chosen to play. 
which is also indicative of why we have a two list format because you know just changing out your army commander can radically change how your army plays and one of the elements of this game that i really like from a tournament perspective is when you come to a tournament you need to prep your list to cover all your bases okay if you're if you have a list a that list A should be good at like, okay, these game modes or versus this opponent, or, you know, these are my failings for that list. So my list B will cover these scenarios. That's really the intended design of, you know, a two list format here is to give you a spectrum of options to cover all bases because the scenarios are very dynamic. The different armies are very dynamic. So giving you that additional ability to plan against this. That's gonna bring me to a little bit of a side tangent here as well before we continue. Uh, but I really think that this is worth addressing. So there are some metas out there that when they run tournaments, they announce the game modes beforehand. Like, oh, we're running a tournament on this day. It's going to feature four rounds with these four game modes. So I'm actually really a, kind of against that. And the reason for that being is while it's not inherently bad to do that, what you are doing in that situation is that you are shaping a meta based around those game modes versus building lists that can cover all your bases. For example, if I know that I'm playing three round, a three-round tournament and that it's going to be Feast for Crows and Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings, two of those game modes, like Feast for Crows, okay, that means that I need to build a high morale army that's going to help me out in that game mode specifically. And Clash of Kings, it's like, okay, well, I will take a super, super tanky commander, or I'll take an NCU commander and no attachments here. So by announcing game modes beforehand, you're shaping people's lists, which is in turn going to shape the meta that you're playing in. This is drastically different than going, we are going to be playing a three-round tournament. You need to be prepped for any game mode. Because now people can't tailor their they can tailor their list on the assumption that they might come across a certain game mode, but because it's not definite, they're kind of tunneling themselves into this very specific uh, design element for their list. Frankly, I can see arguments for both ways, like how it works, but I just want to make people aware because this is an unintentional an unintentional side effect that I see happening that I don't know people are considering. When you announce game modes beforehand you are shaping meta lists previa, uh, prior to the event because people are going to start building uh, based on the information they have versus building these kind of all comers or kind of toolbox set of lists that can cover any of the existing game modes because you never know. You know, if I'm building a, a list that's, oh, this is super high morale, so it does really good in Feast for Crows. Well, what happens if you don't play Feast for Crows? It's like, oh, well, that list is also really good against Lannisters. Like, okay, well, what if you don't have any Lannisters in your tournament for some reason? You know, it's just you're because of the information you're presenting, it's going to end up shaping how people bring their list to that event. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people consider when they are doing that format. And that's also the reason why I'm against it. Uh, again, I'm not so against it that I'm saying, no, you can't do this because I don't think it's that extreme. It's just it's the type of local meta that you want to establish. I feel that when you are doing events where you're announcing game modes beforehand, you're going to push people towards playing certain lists, and that's going to create a meta based around that, and you're going to see less list diversity. That's my personal feelings there. So, all right, side tangent done. Back to what we were talking about. So let's go to a Clash of Kings. This is actually objectively one of my favorite game modes because it is technically one of the most just um, kind of kill heavy, 
where it is like, yeah, we're going to kill guys. We have this big concept of reckless abandonment where, um, you know, if I lose guys, they're just going to respawn in. It's going to be cool. And they're going to be on the flanks. I really like all the ideas in this game mode. The only issue I have is that there are some elements of it that are kind of holding it back from really achieving the fundamental levels that I want to see in it. And I'm not going to say it's gaming the system because that's, you know, this is a tournament. This is how the game modes work. But, you know, you'll see those people that run like, okay, well, I'm going to run an NCU commander and no attachments. And that falls back to the whole I'm building a list specifically for this game mode thing that I just talked about, which is why I want to talk about that before I segue into here. But while that is valid to do, it's not something I really like to see encouraged because it's you are actively denying certain aspects of list creation to gain a overall minor benefit in this game mode. And I do consider this minor. Like, okay, you're you're doing all these steps here to avoid the potential for your opponent to get two additional victory points. I know that people are going like, that's a huge swing in everything. Mm. When you look at raw data and everything, it's it's not really for the sacrifices you're potentially doing. But this is another one of those situations that by that being an option, people are naturally pushed into that direction. Whether it is going to be tactically viable or not, people look at it and go, oh, I can do this. Therefore, it seems like something I should do. So that's something that's being reevaluated as well here. Clash of Kings, I really like the idea of it being kind of commander focused, but there are better ways of doing that than making it so your opponent your opponent gets extra victory points off it. This is probably going to be evaluated a bit to be that your commander will gain some additional benefits for being there rather than not. This is also brings up another point here of the whole NCU commander versus uh, field commander. NCU commanders have inherent strengths and weaknesses versus field commanders, and those really need to come out and shine via some of the game modes. Uh, NCU commanders, by their nature, are going to give you access to the tactics board and extra activation and such. There needs to be a good balancing factor for running an NCU commander versus a field commander. Uh, and that's just a term I made up, field commander here, but basically an attachment commander. So you'll see that in a couple of the game modes is that you are rewarded for running a commander on the battlefield versus having one, um, just an NCU one. And that is by design. That's another thing, the question that kind of comes up a lot is that you'll have certain game modes here that give you benefits for having a field commander versus an NCU. And people go like, oh, well, can't I just proxy, you know, a commander on my battlefield and run my NCU commander? Like, no, you're, this is a specific design choice here that you are making a choice to have an NCU commander. You're gaining the benefits of having an NCU commander and losing the benefits of having a commander on the battlefield. And they're like, well, I'm just going to house rule it anyway. Like, okay, you can house rule it all you want, but you are in, by you are inherently giving yourself a bonus that is by the rules not intended to be there. So that's another thing to take into consideration. I'm uh, House rules and everything are a whole other can of worms that I'm never going to touch. Uh, my personal opinions on, but noting that every time you house rule something, it has ripple effects that have probably been considered by the design and development staff and are the way they are for a reason. If you want to ignore those, that's fine, but then you don't get to come back and start complaining about balancing because you edited the rules. You know, it's like homebrew mods for any video games or everything. Back to Clash of Kings. So I really like the whole, you know, elements of coming in the flanks and all this. I just think that there's some tweaking that could be done here, specifically on the limitations of what people bring 
to modify this and make it a little bit more open-ended. Something else that's very minor to talk about here is the inclusion of character units. Um, we are actually looking at the fact about you know how they come back and if they can come back and things like that. That's something I'm not going to get into because that's a little spoilers. But you know, it's one of those feel bad things about like I'm going to run my King's Guard or Edward's Honored Guard, and if they die, they don't get to come back. So therefore, I'm again naturally inclined not to run them in this game mode. And it's really situations like that which I'll quote as calling like feels bads. <laughs> um, where it's like I want to run this cool thing but I'm so punished for doing it that I don't really want to do it feels bad pan right we're trying to avoid a lot of those now sometimes it's necessary for the balance of the scenario but we're also evaluating like okay is there a way we can avoid this and still make it really cool because at the end of the day you want to run your cool stuff right you know I like Eddard Stark a lot if you're one of those people I mean yeah whatever but I want to run him and his honor guard every single game they're the only commander I ever want to play I play Clash of Kings and they die and they don't get to respawn well that sucks you know we want to avoid things like that basically open it up so you can play what you want and you're not going to be you know penalized for it feast for crows oh man this is the controversy stir right here I'm going to say some things off the bat right here, which are sure going to piss a lot of people off, but I want to point out as well that um, this is kind of backed up by statistics and data. I try not to influence my personal opinion too much on here. This one right here gets a lot of flack because there's people that go, oh, well, there's no incentive for me to move forward. If I just turtle in my deployment zone, then that's how I win the game by forcing my opponent to come at me. I'm going to counter that with raw statistics that state that that is the fastest way of any variable in this game mode to actually lose the game. Statistically, if you turtle in your deployment zone and don't actually move forward, you are going to lose the game more often than you win. And if you win the game, it's usually actually because some outside uh, effect happened rather than your opponent just playing poorly. I'm not going to say that, you know, oh, it's a death sentence, but uh, it, it's kind of close to a death sentence in this right here. Um, letting your opponent dictate battlefield flow and tempo like that just because you don't want to venture out is a very, very fast way to lose this game mode. Uh, and that's something I've constantly seen in events and whatnot, is that people will get the idea of like, oh, well, if I don't move forward, I just turtle up back here, then make them come to me and they'll have a bunch of tokens on them by the time they get across the battlefield. Uh, you can think that, but in practicality, that's not what happens. Like statistically, it is not what happens. There's also another outlier scenario where if two players decide they're both going to turtle up, then it's like, oh, what happens if we both decide we're just going to turtle up? Then no one wins. It's like, you are exactly right. No one wins. And you both have actively made this choice to lose your game in a tournament format. Uh, casually, if you guys do this, I mean, that's on you. Uh, have fun or not, whatever. But if you're looking at a tournament format where your goal is to win the tournament and get points... If you're both sitting in your deployment zone, you're just both going to tie or lose the game. And I've seen that happen in a couple of events, and it will knock players out of the standing. And they will sit there and go like, oh, I couldn't have done anything. Like, So wait a minute, your your idea here is that you, you had a plan, and you knew you were going to lose because of this plan, but you did it anyway. If I explain it like that, does that make sense to you? Uh, even like if you are like, oh, well, whoever moves first up loses, like, well, you're going to lose anyway in your mind. So why didn't you just move up? But that's here and there. That's going to be a debate that I'm sure people are going to go. You don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. But again, I'm not throwing in personal opinion there. I mean, as little as I can, I just, I 
we have statistical data and things like that to back that up. But anyway, I'm not going to be so blind as to acknowledge the fact that that mentality and play style can be encouraged by a, a reading of the rules of this game mode. And that's definitely not meant to be the intent of this. This game mode is actually meant to reward hyperaggression. By the way, it actually does. Like if you, the more aggressive you are in this game mode, you tend to end up doing better. Um, but point is, I'm not blind to see like why people come to the conclusions that they are. And so you have to look at this and go, is that a healthy game mode state? And it's not really. So this one here is actually going through a bit of an overhaul process of how it works. Um, the core mechanics of it, of the whole morale test and corpse piles and all that, that's not being changed. But there are some other modifications to how this one functions that uh, are going to make it a little bit more, basically lead you in the direction that we want to see with that whole aggressive note. And then also a couple of the special rules are probably going to get trimmed down a little bit and things just streamlined. Basically, there's some minor timing issues that are going to be cut up, um, sorry, cut out. And then also some other little things as well. Because the thing is, there's always lots of little cool things you can do with game modes, but you have to be careful because you never want to add in too many extra special rules because people will start forgetting them. So really, when it comes to evaluating these game modes, what they bring to the table, you have to sit there and go, okay, this is a really cool idea, but is it something that people are going to forget? And is it going to really contribute enough to warrant being included? Those are always the two kind of check marks that you want to look at when you're designing these. Because it can be a really cool idea, but if it's also an idea that people are forgetting to constantly do, then really how worth it is to keep. And then also if you layer on too many special rules and exceptions, then you're taking away from just the core kind of purity of the gaming experience. So that is something to, you know, to consider as well. Wins a winner. All right, guys, I... um. People don't seem to really like this game mode because of the random element in the lack of control for your objectives, and I really don't have a good counter-argument to that. Uh, I actually do feel the same way from a competitive standpoint, is because this is, of all the scenarios out there, the one that can be the most swingy based on just card draw. While I think there's ways to mitigate and work around that, I think it's also a huge hassle to do for what the game mode brings. So this one here is getting an overhaul as well. Not And when I say overhaul, I mean things are being modified and changed to basically take out some of the higher-end luck elements of how this functions. Because at the end of the day, we still want all the game modes to be available to be played in a tournament format without you really feeling bad about it. And of all the existing ones, I do feel the wins winner can be the most swingy based on just I managed to draw these objective cards and my or these secret mission cards, and my opponent got these. So, haha, that's what we got. So while the core elements of how this game mode functions with the secret mission cards is going to be maintained, we are removing some of the luck elements, and I could spend a lot of time talking about how that's going to happen, but this is one that is being evaluated, and I will say that, you know, this is a personal issue I have with it. It's like, well, it's a fun, casual game mode. It's good for casual, but if you're looking at it from a tournament standpoint, it can be infuriating to go... I built this specific army and I felt that it was a really good all comers list or, you know, I was, I built it to claim objectives, but then I got these objectives that just don't really synergize at all with what I'm bringing or the timing of them was just completely off. Or, you know, I discarded this one. I drew a really crappy one. And, you know, the, this one does have luck elements to it that can put, make the game a really uphill fight for the, for a player. And that type of thing is not really something you want to see in a competitive mode. 
So that's, you know, that's, that's, this one's getting reevaluated. Uh, from here on, we're moving on to kind of the newer game modes. And these were built specifically with um, the tournament crowd in mind. Now, the original ones were as well, but some of them are a little bit more lax than others here. Uh, but in the two, even the two previous game systems, I did Dark Age and Wrath of Kings. Uh, you know, we did yearly tournament packs and everything. And you want all game modes to be fun, but you also want them to be usable from a competitive standpoint. One of the things about that is usually uh, symmetrical objectives and things like that are the best way to do that. Having asymmetrical objectives, going back to kind of wins winner there, that can be a nightmare to balance because, you know, you have random luck elements that are coming into play. So I'm a big fan of when we make new game modes, them to be fairly symmetrical as to how is the initial setup and functionality of them, which brings us to A Dance with Dragons. This one here is probably one of my favorite game modes because, you know, you've got your three objectives that you can pick up, move around, and score. I mean, originally I was codenaming them footballs and everything, but apparently the community has determined that these are three dragon eggs that you were fighting over. So, you know what? Hey, good on you guys. Um, but one element of here is that you've got your objectives. They each diff give different abilities, and so you've got to choose here hey, which one do I want to go after? This one synergizes better with my army or this one shuts down my opponent's benefits better. So that is something to really consider there. And that's you know one of the reasons I really like this one. One of the overarching elements as well when we're coming up with new game modes and new scenarios is actually incorporating more of the content that already comes in the core box. So reusing objective cards, reusing secret mission cards, um, and you know making those elements and incorporating them into these modes is a nice thing because you have them and we've got these cool assets why don't we use them more so you know that's always something we take in consideration when we're looking at making new uh, game modes and ideas so as you see here we have three objectives that each have one of the objective cards here and they're very meticulously chosen as to which ones are available because they're going to give you different counters to different armies and different buffs depending on which ones you take so you basically have your combat one here with objective A being when you take it, an enemy unit becomes vulnerable and weakened. You've got your center objective, which is you're going to gain more combat bonuses, but at the same time, you're going to suffer a drawback to those bonuses. And then you have a third objective that can shut down enemy NCUs. So that's going to give you some counterplay there as well. Now, funny enough about some of these objectives, and this is what I mentioned earlier, is the rules moving to be able to contest objectives and shut off your opponent's claim of them. Uh, well, sorry, claim is not the right word to say. A lot of the objectives function off of while you control them, you gain some benefit. And again, we're opening up the ability for armies to stop opponents from being able to control them and contest them so that no one controls them. So if you've got an effect that you really, really don't like your opponent having, while they might still control the, sorry, have the objective and be denying points for it, you can go up there and also deny the effect of it. So again, that's a big important element that we are looking at exploring here. Next one up, we have Fire and Blood. This one here is just like, you're straight up, we're going to go and murder people. This is kind of in that same realm of Clash of Kings, where this is a very combat-focused scenario. Clash of Kings is fine, uh, fun for me because it has to do with a lot of positioning and outflanking and that type of element of things. Fire and Blood is almost like the straight-up slobber knocker here where we're just going to go and kill guys. But even then, this being our probably our most combat-focused of all the game modes, this one here still has elements of knowing what to control, um, being able to properly mark units, and there's a lot of tactical decisions into it. 
So for example, you can choose to, and this, this actually functions a lot of list building and what you choose to bring. So for example here, you will have like dire wolves. Uh, dire wolves are a very interesting uh, thing to include in most game modes when they come up because they're good scenario object uh, grabbers. They're good flanking units and they're free. So they don't grant victory points usually when they're destroyed. All of a sudden you wrap around fire and blood here and people go like, oh, well, what happens if I just get my direwolf marked? It's like, that's a good choice. Uh, that's a very interesting question as well. Your opponent has made a tactical choice, <coughs> apologies, to mark your direwolf. You now, as a player, have the option to take your free unit and put them in harm's way, knowing if they get killed, that they're going to grant additional victory points. Or you can keep them off to the side of the table here and not use them and take the coward's way out here, but deny your opponent those victory points you have been presented with a tactical decision based on the game mode. And that is the type of thing we encourage to see. A lot of, there's some players that look at that and just like, oh, well, that's not really fair. You know, they're just going to choose my direwolf every game. It's like, yes, they have made a tactical choice to mark your unit. And now it's up to you to make a tactical choice over how you respond to that. And that is really the, the essence of the type of decisions that you want to see these game modes kind of make. It's like, okay, these are the lists that you're choosing to bring. There are pros and cons to every list you take, and it's a matter of flexing with the scenario how you're going to, you know, deal with the choices that are made by both you and your opponent. Uh, the last one we have here is a Storm of Swords. This is not meant for tournament play. This is a siege scenario that is um, really just built around, you know, a narrative thing. And the thing is, I actually will take a moment to talk about this. A lot of people ask... You know, they, they assume that the reason this is not included in tournament play is because it's like, oh, it's not balanced. You know, the attacker has way bigger benefit here. Or if you ask the next person, yeah, it's impossible for the defender to lose and the attacker can never win. And then next week it's like, yeah, my game's only ever end in ties. Um, this one here is actually not included in the tournament document for one because it has the most kind of special rules going for it, which again strikes that thing that I was talking about earlier that you don't really want to have. And two, it is um, your list matters in this game mode <laughs> a lot, but is compounded by the fact that you don't know if you're going to be attacker and defender. So while the other modes, it's like, okay, this is a list that's good for Feast for Crows. This is a list that's good for Game of Thrones. Here you have, this is a list that is good for being the attacker in a Storm of Swords. This is a list that is good for being the defender in a Storm of Swords. If I'm, if this list is forced to be made the attacker, then it is terrible. And I know that can be fixed by just, okay, you pick your list after you've made attacker and defender. But now you're getting the whole situation of like you're having to specialize things based on the, not even the role. You're having to specialize your list based on the sub role of a sub game mode that you may be playing that is way too many variables to stack up and then on top of that you're going to have okay here's your special attacker cards that you're going to need to know here's your special defender cards you're going to know and here's the castle wall cards there's so many extra stuff moving on and everything where again this mode was originally made to just be a cool like siege scenario for people to play casually this one was never really meant to be a tournament mode which is why it's never been allowed but it's just still something worth bringing up that the actual reasoning that this is not in tournaments is not for any sense of balance sake. It's just that there's too many variables in this game mode to make it clean enough to run for a tournament. Okay. You guys have 
has been sitting here listening to me talk for the last 40 minutes. Very good. I suppose that we can sit here and talk about some minor spoilers for an upcoming game mode. <laughs> yeah, never say I never gave you guys anything. So I'm going to start this by talking about another little fun like kind of story here is, as you'll notice, the game modes that we have were all based on the books, like the titles of the books. And as time went on, we made more game modes. And then we couldn't use the title of the books anymore because, um, well, crap, there's only so many books. And it's funny because this was brought up in the past. It's like, well, what if we keep making game modes and then we run out because there's only so many books. And that fell down to the old adage of, that's a problem for future you. And screw that guy. <laughs> and now here we are. The future has become the present. And I am berating past me for creating problems for current me. Go figure. I am my own worst enemy. But so the new game mode that we are looking at here um, is actually the tentative title for it is Dark Wings, Dark Words, which is one of the quotes in the book basically referencing uh, ravens that whenever ravens show up, they always bring ill tithings and bad words. Not bad words in the swearing sense, but you know what I mean, okay? This is kind of going to be the spiritual successor to Winds of Winter. I don't want to give away too much for this mode to how it actually works. Um, but I will say that. It is kind of the spiritual successor to Winds of Winter, which is funny because we're also concurrently working with revamping Winds of Winter for a more competitive setting. So this is going to be... it's. While we originally made it to be the spiritual successor to Winds of Winter, it's now going to become the spiritual sister, brother, sibling of Winds of Winter. And the reason I say that, having said Winds of Winter, I think six times in the last 30 seconds, is that this is another game mode that will incorporate the secret objective cards. Sorry, secret mission cards. Uh, this one's really cool, though. It's actually quickly become one of my favorite game modes to play because basically take the idea of the open game modes sorry the open objective for wins a winner which is you're going to flip a secret mission card every round and that's going to give you additional criteria to score victory points and kind of turbocharge that a little bit um where you will have multiple ways of scoring victory points in a dynamic fashion each round that is within the control of both you and your opponent I'm not going to give any specifics because I just want you guys to kind of like think, oh, this sounds really cool. If I give you guys the specifics, then hell, you're just going to play the game mode. And frankly, you'll probably be seeing this one sooner rather than later anyway. But so you're going to have dynamic different objectives that you're going to be trying to score each round, both you and your opponent. But there's also going to be this cool element of counterplay because you're going to be able to basically deny and block certain objectives that you necessarily think that your opponent will be able to do better than you or that you just don't want to deal with this turn. So you're going to kind of funnel it as going, this is going to be the focus of this game round and this is how we're going to do it. And then next round, things will dynamically change. But they're not just going to randomly change. There's going to be a method of controlled variables here that the players will be able to see coming. Um, so that's going to be a really cool element. I've really enjoyed this game mode here because it... It, of all the other game modes, it forces you to think on your feet because the dynamics of the battlefield and how you interact with it can change round to round. Not in such an extreme way, though, 
that's going to be like, oh crap, I'm completely screwed now, but just more so, okay, my tactics avenue and the things I've got to do, this has shifted slightly. I can still go after my original plan, but now these other avenues have opened up and potentially these avenues have closed down temporarily. So I need to reconfigure the order in which I'm trying to do things. It's it's a really fun game mode. And I'm really excited to uh, to talk about that more, but I just want to give you a little sneak peek at the end here for sticking with the whole time to talk about that. And beyond that, here's something else that I would like. So this is going to be posted up on the standard places here, uh, my the Podomatic and all the places you can download and listen to. But one of the places as well is this will be posted up in the unofficial Song of Ice and Fire Facebook group. So down in the comments here, go ahead and let's start a discussion here about the game modes. You know, the type of things that we've talked about here, now that you've heard my end, let's hear your story. Um, your favorite game mode, the type of things that you want to see implemented, Anything that I mentioned here that you thought was like, man, that sounds really cool. And, you know, hell, even the things I mentioned here that you went like, that's dumb as hell. Why would you even suggest that? So uh, please, negative feedback is something I thrive on. So, you know, let's just get that discussion going. because I want to see what you guys think. Not to say that, you know, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's our job, like our literal job to know how to balance and, you know, maintain these things. But community feedback is perpetually important. Because we can have all the statistics in the world saying that, you know, this is the situation, this is how it functions, this is how mathematically it's playing out. But community perception is such a big deal as far as things go, because, again, you can have the math saying that something is this. But if everyone believes, you know, that 2 plus 2 equals 5, then by God, 2 plus 2 equals 5. And that's something to consider as well. So this is just an effort to generate some more discussions and talks and everything. So let's go ahead and hear what you guys have to say as well. So until then, we'll talk to you again in a little bit of time with some more tactics talks, or maybe some more design stuff. But until then, signing out.